would you please turn with me uh, to 2 Samuel chapter 21. The passage for today can also be found in your bulletins or on page 273 of the Blue Bibles if you'd like to use uh, one of those. With uh, this chapter that I am reading today, we've entered into the conclusion of this letter. We've got uh, four more chapters, 21 through 24. And before I read the section that I'm going to read for us today, I do want to give us just a little bit of kind of uh, get our bearings straight in terms of how this is structured because it's going to help us uh, not only this week but in weeks to follow uh, as well. First of all, let me note that uh, chapter 20, where we were last week, it, it ends with a couple of verses that describe the administration of David's kingdom, who was in charge of what. That little, those verses there right at the end of that chapter are kind of a little marker for us. It's, it's kind of a, to let you know this section of scripture has wrapped up. There's a very similar one to this one uh, that was back in chapter 8. And so this one lets you know this main body that we've been looking at now for a number of weeks, which involves David's own sin, uh, and then the consequences, the fallout uh, from that sin, that has come to its conclusion, and now we enter this last section of the book. And this last section of the book is actually very carefully structured for us. It has a very intentional structure to it so that we can kind of pull together themes, themes that we have seen throughout the book of 2 Samuel as well as 1 Samuel uh, are kind of coming together in this section and our attention is kind of being focused on the main things because of course, and you know this, you've been listening to this and reading it along with me, there have been a lot of details that have gone on in these passages and it's easy to lose track of the main points that are in here and this is a way to say, all right, let's, let's pull together here the main things in this section of scripture and it allows us frankly to remember it as well. This is a way that helps our understanding and just grasping these things and remembering them. So in this last section we basically have three themes that are going to be presented to us by the author. Three things that he really wants to bring home for us as he concludes this work. And the structure of this is important and it's significant because what he's going to do is he's going to, he's going to kind of parallel or mirror these three themes. So, so think of it this way. He's going to begin with theme number one. Sorry, I'll do it from your side. He's going to begin with theme number one and conclude in chapter 24 with theme number one again. And then he's going to move on to theme number two at the end of chapter 21 where we are today. And theme number two is also going to be picked up then later. And the same thing for theme number three and theme number three twice. So twice for each of them, a mirror image of, of both of these things. So I did it that way as a, as a one, two, three. If you want to think of it vertically here for a moment, we've got a section that is introduced to us here. Uh, that's A up here. And then a section at the end will match that. A, A at the beginning, A at the end. Uh, and then B, B uh, will, will match one another. And then C, C will match one another as well. Now, 
That's a lot of structural information, but I think it is going to help us and it will make sense and you'll see it clearly as we work our way through it. Let me just now describe what these themes are. What we've got here in the first part of 21 and then in chapter 24 is a statement that says to us one more time that kings, your kings, Israel, both Saul, as we will see today, and then David, as we will see later in uh, chapter 24, your, your kings whom you have appointed, the best of the best, whom even I have called men after, at least one of them, a man after my own heart, they are going to fall as well. These kings are going to suffer a failure in their lives, a sin in their lives, uh, and they themselves are going to need forgiveness. And in, uh, in consequence of those sins, in chapter 21, we'll see that there is a famine in the land, and in chapter 24, we'll see that it's a plague in the land. And the atonement, the cost of the atonement for those sins is significant. And then what we'll see in the second half of chapter 21, and then bringing it around to the second half of chapter 23 as well, are kind of these warrior stories. There's warrior stories of uh, David's mighty men in particular in their battles against the Philistines. And there's two sections that match up, each of those two sections. And then the inside, or if you will, the, the heart of it, three or C in the little illustrations I gave earlier, in uh, chapter 22 and the first part of 23, we've got two psalms of kingship that kind of really bring together as a whole and say, this is the heart of what I'm talking about. Don't miss this. This is the heart of all that has been said in the book. And just so you know, uh, these sections are thematically organized. They're not chronologically uh, organized here. They're designed, they're, they're pulling from different parts in order to say, listen, look at the themes, don't look at a chronology of events here in them. Now, uh, I copied the entirety of chapter 21 uh, in your bulletin today, or asked Rebecca uh, to include the entirety of 21. I've actually decided only to read the first 14 verses because I think that's actually enough for us uh, today, and we'll pick up uh, we'll pick up the other part when we come back around to uh, the other side. So, with that, here now this portion of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word, 21 verses 1 through 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year, and David sought the face of the Lord, and the Lord said. There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, what shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, it is not a matter of silver or gold between us and Saul or his house. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, what do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, 
the man who consumed us and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel, let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armoni and Mephibosheth, obviously a different Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merab, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barzillai, the Mahalathite. And he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest. Then Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, took sackcloth and spread it for herself on the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizpah, the daughter of Aiah, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jabesh-Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Bethshan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought them up from there, the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan, and they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zillah, and the tomb of Kish, his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. Let's pray. Great God and heavenly Father, you are the king, and we are your people by your grace. We pray today that you would help us to hear your word, the word of the king given to your people. And we pray that you would help us to respond accordingly. Spirit of God, illumine us and enable us to understand what you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. Last week in the sermon, I used the word maddening several times to describe at least my own reaction to the endless cycles of rebellion and violence that have confronted us in this book and that to some extent confront us in our own lives as well. Perhaps this week, the words sobering and sad would fit the description that we've just read. At least they would fit it as we read it initially. Uh, another word might be shocking. If you've not read this passage before uh, and you just heard me read it for the first time, shocking, I think would be a word that we would use to describe it. The, the passage certainly feels at first reading to be simply brutal and cruel and heartless. 
perhaps especially as modern Western readers of an ancient Eastern text. And we, we can't help but wonder about the justice that is described here, about the punishment that is described here. And I want to affirm this for us as we begin it. The passage is without question chilling. It, it's raw. But I also want to say to us as we look at this and as we work through this passage, it is actually not without hope and mercy. Both can be found significantly in this text as well. So how do we approach this text? Well, we're going to use verse 3 of what I just read for us as kind of our orientation for how to understand what is set before us. This is where David approaches the Gibeonites seeing that this problem is attached, as we've seen and as I read for us, to what took place against the Gibeonites, David has this question for them when he arrives and he says to them, what shall I do for you and how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? How shall I make atonement? That's our question. That's going to be our guiding question today. Atonement is a word here that is often used, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. It's one uh, which many of us are familiar with because uh, of Yom Kippur. So we know of Yom Kippur, perhaps from our uh, Jewish friends, you've heard of it. Uh, it's Leviticus chapter 16, the Day of Atonement. Okay, there's a Day of Atonement, there's a holiday, uh, a feast day of atonement, of recognizing that the Lord works on our behalf and we need the Lord's work on our behalf. We need the Lord to cover, and that's the idea of atonement, to cover over what has taken place, to not see us in light of our sins. Atonement then is about pardoning. It's about pacifying. It's about removing the consequences of guilt. It's about making amends. Atonement, of course, uh, assumes and realizes that a serious problem exists, and atonement is seeking then reconciliation, restoration to this. So we don't often use a phrase like this, but we may, and we might at least recognize it. We might ask someone, how do I atone for my mistake? And what we're asking when we say, how do I atone for this? How do I atone for what I've done wrong? We're asking, how do I make this right? Hey, something has gone wrong. Something terrible has taken place. How do I make this right? David is asking that question. How do I make this right? So that the Gibeonites become a source of blessing to the people of Israel, to the heritage of the Lord, the people of Israel instead of being a source of cursing to the people of Israel because of what Saul had done to them. How do we make atonement? That's the question. And today then we're going to look at this text in terms of the need for atonement, the cost of atonement, and the accomplishment of atonement. 
So, the need for atonement. Let's look at that first of all. That is seen initially, immediately as we begin our text this morning, by the three-year famine that exists in the land. No doubt that was a time when a lot of people were suffering. Uh, certainly people had died as a result of this famine. And David seeks the Lord regarding uh, the cause of the famine and in prayer for relief from the famine. Now let's remember, we've noted this at various times as we've worked our way through this, that generally speaking, usually, typically, we don't know the reason why tragic and terrible events occur in one place with one people as opposed to another. So why did tornadoes strike the middle of the country uh, or the southern part of the country? We, we are not able to answer the question, well, it's because these people were worse sinners than that, uh, those people over there. We usually don't have from God a specific, this is the reason why this is happening. But in this case, according to the mercy of God and uh, the intercession of the king, we get a specific answer to David's request. David wants to know what's the source of the famine, and God, in his mercy, tells him what it is. Namely, it's that Saul had been unfaithful to the Gibeonites. In Saul's zeal, he probably had a campaign of murder and massacre and extermination for this people. They were a soft target, if you will. In the, in the midst of Israel there, they were a soft target. And Saul says, I can demonstrate my zeal. I can demonstrate my kingdom. I can purify by wiping out these people, the Gibeonites who are here. Now, by way of reminder, and this is, of course, very important for the story today, the Gibeonites are the people who back in Joshua chapter 9, when Israel was coming into the land and Joshua was, leading, Joshua was leading the conquest of the land, the Gibeonites had heard, had seen how Israel was being victorious over these many nations that they were encountering during this process. And so the Gibeonites think to themselves, listen, we've got to find a way not to become the next ones who are destroyed because the sins of the Canaanites had risen to the amount where God said, that's it. I'm executing judgment now upon the Canaanites through the Israelites. And the Gibeonites are looking for a way out of this. So they approach Israel. And if you recall the story, they approach Israel with deception. They come with kind of their old clothes on and uh, kind of dirt thrown around them, and they present to Joshua and the other leaders this old bread. And they say to them, listen, when we started out our journey, uh, this was fresh bread. It was hot. It was warm. It was right out of the oven, and now it's all crusty, and it's all moldy, and it's all old. See, we don't live anywhere around here. We live a long way away. We're a people from a long way away. But still, we'd like to enter into a covenant of peace with you because we see that the Lord is with you. And so Joshua and the other leaders of Israel agree to this. They enter into a covenant of peace. And even when the ruse is discovered, even when the deception is uncovered that, in fact, the Gibeonites do not live a long way away, they live right here, and they should have been one of the people who Israel conquered in their conquest of the land, even when that deception is discovered, Joshua forbids anyone from doing anything against the Gibeonites because that covenant of peace existed. So Joshua says, no, we, we can't take them out at this point. We've made a covenant of peace. We need to live by that covenant of peace that has been established. 
And so 400 years go by. The Gibeonites are still living there. 400 years between Joshua and Saul-ish, 400 years-ish. And Saul violates the oath. Saul violates that oath, and then a few more years pass. We don't, it's, it's hard to know exactly how much time has passed. Obviously, Saul has died by this point. It seems that Mephibosheth by this point has been taken into David's household, as we saw earlier uh, in this book. But it's hard to get a sense of exactly the timing here. A few more years pass, and there is a famine that exists because of Saul's sin. Because of Saul's sin, against the Gibeonite. One writer says it this way, there are no, there's no statute of limitations with the justice of God. No statute of limitations with the justice of God. There's no ambiguity then in this passage. This is the sin that caused the famine. This is who did it. This is why atonement is needed. Atonement between, on the one hand, Israel and the Gibeonites but on the other hand, and more significantly, between Israel and God. What then is the cost of the atonement? Seven sons. Seven sons of the king. Silver or gold will not do. There's no purchase price on this. But blood will do. Leviticus 17.11 for the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Seven sons. Actually, if you were paying close attention as it was read, two sons and five grandsons. Seven. A number of completion. Surely, not anywhere close to the amount of the, the number of the Gibeonites that have probably been already slaughtered by Saul in the effort to eliminate them. Seven, to represent the whole of the offense and the entirety of the offenders. Seven, sons of the king who will be hung on a tree. Which is to say, seven sons bearing the curse to remove the curse of famine in the land from the people of Israel. Now on the one hand, we might say that this is just. It is, after all, a life for a life. That is the prescription in scriptures. We can say that the scripture says that the cost of shedding blood is in fact the shedding of blood. So we might look at it and say this is just. On the other hand, we might say it doesn't seem just because scripture says, Deuteronomy 24, 16, fathers shall not be put to death because of their children nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. How then can this act of execution of seven substitutionary sons be just? And how can it satisfy 
justice. Really, it seems, I would suggest to most of us as we read it initially, almost incomprehensible. It, it, it almost seems unconscionable that, that this should proceed as it does. Perhaps, perhaps some of that is because we, we fail to understand the heinousness of sin against God and we fail to understand the heinousness of this particular sin of Saul. Let me, let me do this for us. Let me point out three specific factors in this sin. First of all, consider the nature of the sin itself. This is not an individual private sin which took place. This is not an individual murder which took place. It was an attempt at extermination of genocide. And if you want to think of it in a particular way that maybe helps us to see this from the, the other angle, think of the book of Esther for a moment. Think of the plot that Haman had against the Jews. They were living in Susa. Okay, very similar to the fact that the Gibeonites were there in the midst of Israel. And Haman and those who go along with him seek to exterminate the Jews, to get rid of the Jews that are in their midst, this problematic people that are there. Now, when the plans fail for that, the Jews then go against their would-be assailants and they kill do you know how many? How many the scripture records for us? Here's the answer. 75,811, if I've done the math right. 75,811. Haman is one of the 11, and his 10 sons are the 11. The sin of Saul in its scope and nature was heinous. The cost, relatively speaking, of seven sons, as other authors note, actually, actually limits the retributive violence, the retributive justice. 75,811 compared to seven. So it helps us to see maybe a little bit of what's going on here, the significance and the heinousness of what took place and the penalty that could have been exacted. Second, second aspect of this. This sin is a violation of a national oath taken before the Lord by the leaders of Israel and by their leader in particular, Joshua. Now we may take covenants and vows and oaths lightly. They may seem to us quaint and arcane, nice things to say, but when push comes to shove, they're negotiable. The terms and the conditions of these covenants and these vows are negotiable for us, but God doesn't view them as such. Covenants are bonds in blood. And what is taking place in a biblical covenant is this statement. 
if I break the terms of the covenant, may the blood that has been spilt in the making of this covenant be upon me. May it be upon me. So covenants are matters of life and death. They say in effect, may my blood be shed if I break this covenant. Third, while Saul is a man, and a man who is personally responsible for his own sin. One of the things that we have labored to see throughout this book is that neither Saul nor David were just men. They are kings. And as kings, what they do matters. It doesn't matter only for them personally. It certainly does. But it matters for everybody else in the kingdom. They are the representative heads of their people. And as they go, so go the people. And as they fall, so fall the people. Saul had a particular responsibility to uphold the covenant that was made by Joshua with the Gibeonites before Yahweh, and he threw it away. He ignored it. And at the end here then of 2 Samuel, what our writer is saying to us is the lesson we have been told time and time again from the very beginning of this book, the beginning opening of this book, the song that started it off was how the mighty have fallen. And what we're being told again at the end of the book is Israel, your kings, your kings are going to fall. Even your kings are going to need atonement for the sins that they commit. And so the blood of the Gibeonites cries from the ground and seven sons die for the sins of the king. Many times I've read from Ralph Davis and I'm gonna do it now again in an extended way to reflect on this passage because it's so brilliantly written. Davis writes, none can evade the raw horror of this scene. We can only try to understand up to a point what is happening. King Saul violated the covenant with Gibeon. He is off the scene and cannot personally suffer the curses of the covenant breaker. Hence, per Gibeon's request, those who belong to Saul stand as surrogates. They become, as it were, the covenant breakers who stand in the place of Saul and Israel. Having written all this, I still have questions about this passage. I have not worked out all its implications. Most readers, however, are simply aghast at the sheer horror of this episode. That, I suggest, points us to its primary applications. Readers, hearers, should be aghast. The text says atonement is horrible. It is gory. Atonement is never nice, but always gruesome. We need to see this, for easily we fall into the trap of regarding atonement as merely a doctrine, a concept, an abstraction to be explained, a bit of theology to be analyzed, or little better, to view it as a moving story to be replayed during Passion Week. But we should know better. Surely the Israelite worshiper realized this when he towed a young bull to the tabernacle and had to slit its throat, skin it, 
cut it in pieces, wash the inside and legs. It was all mess and gore from slicing the bull's throat in Leviticus 1 all the way to Calvary where Jesus was crucified. God has always said atonement is nasty and repulsive. Christians must be aware of becoming too refined, longing for a kinder, gentler faith. If we've grown too used to Golgotha, where Jesus was crucified, perhaps Gibeah, the passage before us today, can shock us back into truth. Atonement is a drippy, bloody, smelly business. The stench of death hangs heavily wherever the wrath of God has been quenched. Wherever the wrath of God has been quenched brings us to the accomplishment of the atonement. The bodies were left. The bodies were not taken down. They are left hanging. And then we see there a faithful, mournful, weeping mother. The protection of a mother, the defense of a mother against her son's further humiliation, it, it's almost, it, you almost can't look at it, right? It's almost unbearably tragic and awful to even imagine the scene. I don't think that according to the law of God, those bodies should have been left there hanging. According to the law, and it's always a little bit difficult to understand all the aspects of the law in its application from this distance, but I think they should have been taken down. They should have been buried. But her fidelity, her stationing herself there and doing the work that she has done or is doing to do her best to preserve whatever dignity, whatever honor, whatever humanity is left of her killed sons reminds David of the faithfulness and the fidelity that was shown by the men of Jabesh Gilead. Again, this is a story that takes us back. It takes us back right to the end of 1 Samuel. If you recall that, Saul and three of his sons, including Jonathan, have been killed in a battle against the Philistines. The Philistines take the bodies and the Philistines hang their bodies up on one of the walls of their city. The men of Jabesh Gilead get word of the dishonor that is being shown to the king and his sons. And they go out and they rescue the bodies off of that. They bring the bodies back to their town. They burn them. They bury them. They bury the bones, at least. And David hears this, or hears of this woman. It reminds him of this story, and it triggers in him what needs to be done. And so he sends emissaries, and they go up, and they gather up the bones of Saul, of Jonathan, his brothers. They gather up the bodies of these sons of Saul here, grandsons as well, that have been killed. And they gather them, and they bury them in their grandfather slash great-grandfather's tomb, Kish's tomb. And after that, this is the last phrase, God responded to the plea 
for the land. When the bodies are buried, God responded to the plea for the land. In effect, what the Lord says is atonement accomplished. In this situation, for this sin, for now, atonement has been accomplished. Now, I trust that you see where we need to go with this, right? We now need to go to the cross. We, we need to go to the cross and look squarely at the cross, at a mother's weeping at the cross, at a man who will take down the body off of the cross and bury it because he's got to get the body down and bury it in the tomb. You need atonement. I need atonement because we have sinned. God doesn't just ignore that. He doesn't just forget about it. His holy justice will not allow him to simply forget about our sin. The blood of bulls and goats will not atone for us. Silver and gold will not atone for us. The blood of sinful kings and the sinful sons of kings cannot atone for you. Not the labor of your hands could fulfill the law's demands. Could your zeal, no respite, no, could your tears forever flow, all for sin could not atone. The atonement we need must come from another, must come from a substitute for us, a king, or the son of a king. Not seven, just one. A perfect, obedient, covenant-keeping son has shed his precious blood like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The sprinkled new covenant blood of Jesus speaks a magnificent word. It says to you, it is accomplished. Your atonement is made. Your atonement is paid. The cost of making it right has been paid by me. It has been accepted for all who will come to him and believe. The blood of Jesus cries out that the wrath of God, that the anger of God against us for our sin, and note, I didn't just say against our sin, against us for our sin, the blood of Jesus cries out, that's atoned for. That wrath of God is satisfied. Justice asks no more. His atonement is perfect. It covers the least of your sins. It covers the greatest of your sins. No other sacrifices are needed. 
The king's son has died that you might live. Believe it. The king's son hung in your place. That is why he came into Jerusalem. And that is why on his way into Jerusalem, he weeps at the people who don't see the very purpose for which he has come. The purpose for which he has come is not to establish himself at that moment as king over all of them. The purpose for which he is going into Jerusalem on that donkey is to die. Is to fulfill these prophecies. These words that are here. To go in and die to atone because it is what justice required and it is what love desired. One of our hymns asked this question. Full atonement, can it be? Full atonement, can it be? Hallelujah. What a Savior. Yes, it can be. Full atonement can be. And so, if you were asked by the Lord, or if you ask the Lord of heaven and earth, if you feel guilty about your sin, and you ask the Lord of heaven and earth, and you say to him, how shall I atone for this? That's what David asked, right? How shall I atone for this? If you ask the Lord, how shall I atone for this? What will be his response? With men, it is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. You cannot atone for it. You cannot make the payment necessary. But God says, I can and I have in my son. Full atonement for our sins. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Lord, we thank you for such a Savior as our Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray that in him would be our hope. When Satan comes to vex our spirit, when troubled conscience sighs for rest, when the darts fly into our hearts, accusing us again and again, then may we see Jesus, the cross, the blood that was shed on our behalf. Thank you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.